Psalm 109. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body's become gaunt with no fat. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death.
Good morning, everybody. Thanks, guys, for that. Um, as Peter mentioned, we are um, going to be preaching through Psalm 109, obviously, today. And um, we've been in, in uh, if you're visiting today, we've been in pastor's open mic mode for a little while, which you like to call basically our miscellaneous sermon time. So we've been uh, doing everything from a couple Christmas sermons to um, uh, Barron spoke on the gospel according to Lion King back on January 2nd, had a visioning sermon last week, so a lot of different things. These next two weeks, we're going to be talking about a couple of psalms, and then on February 6th, we're going to start a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament wisdom literature book of Ecclesiastes, which will take us through June um, or so, but these next couple of weeks are a couple of psalms that um, I've been wanting to preach for a while, so I'm excited to do that and start with one of them today. So today's psalm is uh, Psalm 109. And what makes it tricky to interpret or even to read at times, as you may have noticed when Alan was reading it, is that it falls under the classification of imprecatory psalm, uh, which essentially means cursing psalm. There are different types of psalms in the book of Psalms. There are uh, Thanksgiving psalms and uh, Messianic psalms and royal psalms and other types of psalms. And there are imprecatory psalms or cursing psalms. So in other words, the psalmist then in these types of psalms, and I think all of the imprecatory psalms written by David, I might be wrong on that, but at least most of them are, um, so, but in this particular case, in Psalm 109, David is cursing other people. Um, precatory means to curse or invoke a curse upon or call down a curse upon um, other people and essentially invites God's judgment and wrath to befall them. So the challenge of interpreting psalms like this is how do we read by psalms? A lot of modern-day music is inspired by psalms, but not a lot of the imprecatory psalms. <laughs> These are the ones you kind of skip over and say, well, you know, we don't want to do that. We want to curse people, so let's, let's not uh, write one there. But, um, but how do we write these as Christians? And not, not only is it Old Testament literature written by an Israelite king 3,000 years ago, but it invites curses upon people or wrath upon people. We could even say at this point, doesn't the, the New Testament say we are to bless people and not curse people and even bless our enemies? Those people that are enemies, clearly enemies against us, doesn't, doesn't the Bible, Jesus himself, call us to love them? So how does that fit in with what this type of psalm is encouraging us, or at least by example, showing us uh, to, to do or to pray or just to have a relationship with God and, and talking to him. So, uh, so what do we do with a psalm like this? How does it find fulfillment in the New Testament? Remember, it's a, the biggest question we can always ask when we're studying a passage in the Old Testament. How does it have this forward-looking uh, motion to it? How does it anticipate Christ and the church's experiences? And where is the divine meaning in it, as all of Scripture has it? Not just written by an individual, a uh, person, a human being, but where is God's divine meaning behind it as well? So um, there's a lot of things we could do with Psalm 109. It's a relatively long psalm, too, so there is a lot here I'm not going to do today, but there's a lot I want to do as well. And, and I think that we need to approach Psalm 109 and, and psalms like it from three different perspectives uh, to really get at what it's saying to us. And so um, uh, us as Christians in this New Testament, New Covenant era. So, um, so three things. We're going to look at all three things today. The first thing, uh, in terms of in the greater heading here, is what does Psalm 109 teach us? The first thing it does is it teaches us about David. So David is the author. Verse 0 says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So this psalm is about David, written by him, about some of his experiences and prayers. And without going into too much detail about who David was, a lot of you know who King David was in the Old Testament, some of you don't. Uh, but in summary, uh, he was a shepherd from the tribe of Judah, the son of Jesse, uh, the tribe of Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesse was actually related to Boaz and Ruth, a little bit of historical and biblical context there if you know who they are from elsewhere in the Old Testament. 
David was anointed by Samuel and actually anointed by God as king. And there's another king who is a king in Israel at this time too named Saul. He's actually the first king of Israel. But he's chosen by the people, not really by God. There's a reason for that, theological reason for that, which I'm not going to go into today. But uh, not God's king or God's choice for king, but he's king nonetheless. God chooses David to be king and actually has Samuel, uh, the kind of judge, prophet type, a priestly type uh, figure in the Old Testament, literally anoint him as king. This is not uh, known by Saul immediately either. Later it is, but this is happening. It's kind of a cool story. There's this unrecognized uh, divine king or God-chosen king in David, and there's this uh, illegitimate king who's uh, ruling at the same time. So it makes for some really cool stories back in the books of First and Second Samuel. But anyway, he's anointed uh, by God in subversion to Saul, essentially. He volunteers to slay Goliath because no one else would. Saul wouldn't either. He's scared of him. But David uh, volunteers to do it, and he does it. Um, he was brought into King Saul's quarters as his personal musician for a number of years. Then later, uh, m- many years later, he formally becomes king in the eyes of the people of Israel and reigns for 40 years. And then after that, or at least the beginning of that, he's covenanted by God. One of the biggest uh, theological important things to get uh, as it relates to David in the Bible is that God covenants with him and says, I'm going to make your throne last forever. And there's a little bit of tension there in the Old Testament because we know David dies. He only reigns for 40 years, and he dies like everyone dies. So how is his his throne going to last forever? It's kind of a question mark. There's a tension there in the story, but it ultimately leads us ahead to Jesus who uh, fulfills that. We'll get to that here in a little bit. So this psalm, Psalm 109, was written um, when he was being chased by Saul. And I left that out in my synopsis of or summary of David's experiences there. But um, eventually Saul realizes and sees this divine favor that's upon David, and he's threatened by it. He wants to be king. He sees that God has favor over this guy. And so he, instead of liking having him around, being his personal musician, and just like having him around uh, as some, somewhat of a friend and uh, uh, someone just in his, uh, in his life, he pursues him, wants to kill him. And so much of the latter half of the book of 1 Samuel is given over the story of Saul literally being out there with his men, uh, an army in a sense, a small army, chasing, trying to look for David to kill him. And there's just really uh, cool interactions there and stories. And a lot of the prayers of the book of Psalms come from that experience. And this is one of them. Uh, David's just threatened. He's being pursued. He's being chased. He's being uh, betrayed and attacked and cursed And uh, David cries out to God for deliverance and help from this. And God does deliver him. As the story goes, uh, of course, he becomes king formerly in the eyes of the people later. So Saul is pursuing him. King Saul and his people are pursuing him. So that's who David's referring to in Psalm 109 when he is uh, invoking this curse upon these individuals who are chasing him. Verses 1 to 5, again, say, "Be Be not silent, O God of my praise, for a wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Again, this is Saul and his mini army. Speaking against me with lying tongues, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. So he's innocent. In return for my love, so David loves this. And you see this back in the book of uh, 1 Samuel 2. David's clearly loving and respecting the fact that Saul is king. He loves his people. He has a love for them, but he's cursing them at the same time. Clearly seeing that what they're doing is sin and it's wrong. So it's kind of a, a very interesting mix of love and recognizing that evil is evil. And it needs to be dealt with. And it's not okay in God's eyes. And that really comes to a head in what we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ here too, uh, which again we'll get to in a second. So, they, and then in verse 5, they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. They reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David was essentially betrayed, uh, hated and attacked by some of his fellow Israelites. And as the story goes, 
He was uh, chased into exile, like I mentioned, into the wilderness. Spends a lot of time there, away from people and in hiding. From there, he curses his enemies, saying things like in verse 12, let there be no one to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. So essentially just wishing death upon him. And it's these type of really difficult sayings here um, that constitute uh, these imprecatory psalms. May he die, and may his children not have a father. And may even the children kind of wander and stuff. So um, difficult in, uh, to read, but from God nonetheless and divine. And so these are the t- difficult things to wade through, and we'll do that here this morning. But he's doing this, he's invoking this curse, but he's also trusting that God would save him and provide for him. So basically two things, kind of two sides of the coin. God, deliver me and save me and deal with this evil that threatens my life, which is kind of the way we pray a lot in our life. Even if it's for small things, when we pray for deliverance, we're by definition praying for deliverance from something, right? There's something that's threatening us or causing us to suffer or just not good in our life, whatever it might be. It might be something really small, but that's really what David's doing here. He has problems and an issue here, a very big one, um, but a, prob- a problem nonetheless that every human being in history can relate with, even Jesus. So maybe especially Jesus, you could say. Um, so in the first place then, this first kind of initial, uh, at least uh, surface is probably not the right word, but this initial reading we get from the text from Psalm 109 is that it teaches us about David. And, and I think in one sense we get to see some really cool biblical, th- biblical themes arise here. I've got three, there's a lot here, uh, but I think three things start to kind of arise as we just... At, at, at first glance, get some things from this psalm. And that are th- that these three things. One is the people of God will be persecuted even by their own families. Major theme in the Bible is you see the people of God are persecuted even by people that love them and know them well. You see this throughout the Old Testament. Maybe David's experience is um, paramount in some way, but this occurs in Jesus' life and it occurs in the church's experience as well. So we will have this too. So in that sense, we can relate with David. Secondly, uh, many times, praise and thanksgiving arise out of trial. So David has a confident future hope in God, even while he suffers and his, life is, and his life is threatened. I think this is why, and this is something that transcends the Psalms and the style of Psalms too, not just in the cursing Psalms, but it, I think this is why people, oh, I love the Psalms so much, is because we can relate to that. We have trials, and we suffer, and yet as a human being who's created in the image of God, and whether we know God or not, we're wired for him, to be known by him and to dwell with him, uh, in the context of suffering, to still praise God. It's wonderful. And it's an example to follow, I think. He has this future hope. He believes that he's going to be delivered, but he hasn't yet. But he believes God, and he trusts in him, and and it's this beautiful display of God's character, too, that he's faithful and loving, and he will, uh, in the end, come through for him. And as the story goes, of course, we know he does. He comes through and deals with Saul, and allows him to take the throne and, and takes care of that part of his life. So, um, so a great example there for uh, even us as the church in this New Testament era to follow, and we do. And then third, God is the one who delivers us from evil, not ourselves. So in other words, you notice the, as the story goes here, and a lot of this is background stuff, but even in the psalm, you can see it in the what, how he talks, but he's not taking on these guys himself, right? It's I mean, in one sense, this is a great story. Like, if this were a movie, you know, again, it's kind of a cool plot. I'm sure this kind of stuff comes out in some movies. I couldn't think of any. Um, But it's this cool, like, you know, God-recognized king in exile, pushed into exile. There's this illegitimate king ruling over Israel who wants to to kill this guy. It makes makes for a great story. But as the story goes, you know, I mean, if this were a movie today, you might, this is the point in the movie where you might see the guy, like, have this 
you know, spiritual moment in the wilderness and kind of gather strength or gather a small army and go and take the throne back, you know, or something, or something like that. But it doesn't, doesn't happen in the Bible. The people of God fight for sure, but it's always by the strength of God. And sometimes they just don't at all. And in this psalm, you see a great picture of David just depending on God for salvation. He's weak. He says, I've been shaken off like a locust. Will you save me? Major, major, major biblical theme here. The people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, uh, typify this, but the church, for our sake and purposes, in this New Testament era, the church, when we fight against our enemies of sin and, uh, and death and our old self, it's God who does it, not us. Major, major, major theme that we can, a uh, biblical theme that transcends all of Scripture, not just the Psalms, but all of Scripture that, we, that this uh, psalm teaches us and that we can take fresh encouragement in today. So David, in Psalm 109, David is utterly dependent on God to save and provide and push back his enemies. You could say that his weakness is God's strength, right? It's very New Testament-y right there. To be strong as a Christian is to recognize that you're weak and you bring nothing to the table. Uh, We need God to deliver us, not just to save us initially and to forgive us sins, but enable us to do good deeds as believers. He does it. He always does it, whether it's through us or just in spite of us. He's the one who does it. Uh, And so um, David gives us a great example of that to remind ourselves as uh, Christians today. Okay, so, but essentially, it teaches us about David. There's a few biblical themes that arise here and that will kind of seep into some other things I'm going to say this morning. But the first thing that Psalm 109 does, it teaches us a little bit about David and gives us a little bit of example uh, to follow as people of God ourselves uh, today. But the second thing it does, more, the more significant thing, is it teaches us about Jesus Christ. Psalm 109.8 says, May his days be few, may another take his office. In Acts 1.20, in the New Testament, so it's a thousand years later, after Jesus had died and was raised again and ascended to heaven, and after Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, uh, killed himself, the disciples looked to this psalm, Psalm 109, actually a different one too, but for today's purposes we'll focus on Psalm 109, looked to a couple psalms as um, being a picture of Judas's rejection of Jesus. Judas being the Saul figure, you could say, in, uh, from Psalm 109's perspective, and Jesus being the David figure. So, um, actually I have Acts 120 in context here. You can go one more slide, Kurt. Uh, in those days, it says this, this is again New Testament now, Peter the apostle, stood up among the brothers and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Skipping down to verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, Psalm 109.8, let another take his office. So, in Acts 1.20 here, the disciples, Peter specifically, but the disciples approached psalms like this, in this particular case, Psalm 109, they approached this psalm as biblical support for bringing on another apostle to replace Judas, and saw this actually in kind of a spiritual sense, or a fulfilled sense, as not so much referring to Saul, to Saul just Saul, but referring to Judas as well, the, and, and in some sense referring to Jesus, the ultimate rejected one in the spirit of David. So, Um, So what's important here is to see how the early church read this psalm, seeing it as typical of Jesus Christ and his experiences. And in a broader sense, 
The New Testament does this all over the place. Even Jesus himself talks about this. Revelation 22, 16, one of the many places in the Gospels are full of this, but looking ahead to Revelation 22, Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus says, I'm a descendant of his, of of David's, physically. I also am from the tribe of Judah, but in a theological, prophetic sense, I fulfill what he began. So he's not just one of David's descendants physically, but it's really important to get when we understand how David and Jesus relate to each other and how our Bible hangs together. David's experiences foreshadow those of Jesus's. So like David was a shepherd from the tribe of Judah who slew a great giant, so was Jesus a shepherd in a spiritual sense. He calls himself that in John 10. He's also physically from the tribe of Judah who slew an even bigger giant. He talks about that in the Gospels as well. He binds the strong man and takes down Satan and deals with our sin and overwhelms death and the grave. And even most, maybe most uh, important for today is that they were both persecuted. So like David was a persecuted and rejected king before he fully took the throne, so was Jesus a rejected and persecuted king before he fully took the spiritual throne and ruled over the universe and ascended into heaven. That's the, that's the connection that the early church, and we were seeing a, a glimmer of this in how in Acts, Peter and the early church interpreted these uh, these psalms having this deeper divine meaning ultimately about Jesus and seeing David's experiences as typical of and resembling of Jesus's. We see that in Acts 120, but as you kind of step back and get the bigger picture, there's a lot more there too. Maybe someday if we preach through the, the Samuel books, we'll see a lot more of that. Really cool stuff. Um, but in a synopsis sense here, you see some, we see this uh, comparisons between the two kings. Maybe most significant in terms of this resemblance between David and Jesus is in in Psalm 109, verse 25. So back to Psalm 109, which says this. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. So David's speaking. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. And then in Mark 15, 29, it says this. And those who passed by Jesus, when he hung on the cross, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, and ridiculing him. So, we're starting to see then some of the, this prophetic divine meaning, not just in Acts 1.20, but also in Mark 15 and other places as well in the New Testament, pulling thematically from Psalm 109, this prophetic divine meaning behind this passage. David's head-wagging rejection, if that's the right way to say it, David's head-wagging rejection prefigured Jesus' head-wagging rejection on the cross. So the psalm then shows us the gospel kind of in shadowy form beforehand. Jesus, the descendant of David, the fulfillment of David's experiences was rejected and killed in our place that we might be saved. So rejection precedes this great salvation event and the taking of the throne. Totally happens in David's life and it totally happens in a greater sense in Jesus' life. Very similar, very connected, but Jesus' ascension to the throne and the salvation he brings and the peaceful rule he brings to the world over the church is much greater. And we got, we got to see this. This is what the early church read it as. This is what it intends to mean in a divine way. It's about Jesus, ultimately. In fact, in Psalm 109.4, too, you see things like, in return for my love, they accuse me. So remember, David is a loving king. He loves his people, but he's being accused by them. In Luke, totally Jesus, right? In Luke 23.10, it says, the chief priests and scribes, the people of Israel, who Jesus loves, remember, remember it says in one point in the Gospels, even though they didn't understand him and wanted him dead and um, derided him, it says Jesus looked on them with love and answered them. 
He loved them even though he was trying to correct them. And even though he brought curse upon them, in one sense you could say, he loved them at the same time. But Luke 23.10 says, The chief priests, the scribes, Israelites, religious rulers stood by vehemently accusing him. So both are accused. This biblical theme of a David-like accusation of an innocent, loving Jewish king finds fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all a part of God's plan. All a part of God's plan. Jesus was not plan B. God always intended to send a king into the world, ultimately his son, but it's prefigured in the work and experiences of David. He always intended to send a king into the world to be rejected, and in Jesus' case, be killed, because it's there that he dealt with sin. Our sin is laid upon him. It's substitutionary. That's the gospel. It's the good news of God's work in the world, the grace of God coming into the world through a king, a David-like king, in this sense, to, uh, to save the world. So that's the blessing then. So we see as we look at this psalm kind of with Jesus' goggles on, we see this anticipation of the gospel in shadowy form, the blessing that comes through that. But at the same time, this is what makes these cursing psalms really tricky. We're going to do this a couple more times before today ends. It's kind of go back and forth. It's like you, they, see, they kind of seemingly kind of bump heads with each other, but they also complement. Two sides of the coin. Jesus brings blessing, but like David, Jesus also brings a curse with him as well directed at all those who reject him, and in one sense, upon evil and sin in general. So like in Psalm 109, there's a lot of um, uh, imprecation here in Psalm 109, obviously, but one place it comes up is in Psalm 109, 17. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him, David says. So those who are cursing me, let the curse come back upon those who are accusing me. Jesus is like that um, as well. In John 3, 17 to 18, in the New Testament, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the blessing, the good news. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is putting salvation out there through his Son, and there's amazing blessing. Jesus didn't come to condemn, he came to bless. But only to those who believe. If, you, if people don't receive Jesus and believe in Jesus, then there is condemnation. Then there is that curse. Then there is that, um, there is that lack of blessing uh, over their lives. And then, again, but again, for those who believe in, as it says in Romans 8, 1 and 3, sin is what is condemned. So it says this. Paul says this, actually. Uh, great understanding of how there's a blessing and, and a curse. just depends on what side you are of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So, again, pulling from Psalm 109, these themes that we begin to see in the Old Testament and seeing how they climax in Jesus, associated with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the salvation he brings into the world, associated with that, like it was with David, is a curse. Either we're cursed for not being in Christ and not being saved by him, not receiving him, that curse remains over us and we have no hope for eternal life. Or sin is cursed, like we see in Romans 8 here. You see? There's a curse that comes into the world. Either it's, either it's us either for rejecting the ultimate David-like king or our sin is cursed because he takes our sin away. And it's the thing that was imprisoning us and keeping us from God. It says here in verse 3 again, by sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So condemnation is going to come with Jesus. Huge blessing, but also condemnation. The question is, where's the condemnation placed? Is it on us? 
or is it on our sin? It's gonna be one of the two. We don't have a choice, there's no third choice. But condemnation comes with him uh, like it did with David. And cursing comes with him like it did with David. Now, really gotta be careful with that because again, like David loved the people that are accusing him, so does God still love people that, that are cursing him. God loves people still. And he's patient, he's patient. But there is still a curse. We've got to get that. The Bible does not teach that everybody's saved no matter where they are or what they believe. It teaches that only those who believe Jesus and are in Christ and received him are saved. So there is a curse that comes with Jesus. Huge blessing, but there's also a curse. That's why we tell people about Jesus and say you've got to believe and receive him, like the Bible says, so that your sin will be cursed and that you'll be saved and made righteous through what he did for you, uh, not that you'll be cursed eternally and have that divine curse and judgment hung over you forever. So that has to be received, and we see that here, again, in Psalm 109 in shadowy form and in clear form in the New Testament. Okay, that leads me into the third thing then today, this third perspective. So first we learn about David. Secondly, we learn about Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ kind of completes what David started in the Old Testament. Third, it teaches us about our own experience as cursed sinners and redeemed saints. So then we kind of bring ourselves into this as well from yet another perspective. So, uh, and there's kind of two sub-perspectives on, on this third perspective. The first is, we like David's enemies are the cursing ones. We like David's enemies, like Saul and his people, are the cursing ones. Rob Plummer says about imprecatory psalms or cursing psalms in general, he says the imprecatory psalms remind us that we have wronged other people. Others could rightly pray these cursing psalms against us. Yet Jesus bore the divine curse that we rightly deserve. So, really easy, and, and this is uh, a little bit of instruction, I guess you could say, for just reading your psalms in general. Um, we've got to be careful when we read them not to too quickly put ourselves in the position of the psalmist. Uh, like in this, in this particular case, it's easy to read this cursing psalm and think, okay, well, I'm like David. People at work just don't like me, so I'm going to pray curses over them or something like that, you know? It's really easy to think that way, but that's not really what's going on ultimately. Well, actually... Partly it is. We'll get to that here in a second. But what's going on first is actually we're not so much in the role of David. We're actually in the role of Saul here. We've cursed people. How much have we hated people in our life and wished harm upon them? You know, to whatever degree. How much have we cursed God or not lived as though he's the king of the universe and the ruler of our lives? How much have we sinned against him and, and uh, disappointed him? You know, so we can think about, uh, we can think about it that in those terms and think, well, actually, we're the cursing ones. Not so much the cursed ones. There's a place for that too here. But we're the cursing ones. So before we too quickly make this psalm about us, we've we got to view it through gospel-centered lenses here. When we do that, we see that we're the ones who have cursed Jesus, like Saul and company and posse did to David. Like we sang in the great hymn, it was our sin that held him there. It was our sin that held him upon the cross. He willingly went. He wanted to die for us, but it was our sin upon his shoulders that held him there. So we can think, or like Rob Plummer is saying here again, we can think, how many times have we encircled people with words of hate? How many times have we done that? Even just once in our life, <laughs> we're all of a sudden in the place of Saul and company here um, and being the cursing ones. Or in return for God's love, like David had love for his accusers, how, in return for God's love, how have we treated God in our life? So if we really kind of step back then and look at this theme of cursing biblically, if you want to summate it, um, there's a lot of angles on it, and so I just uh, wrote this out for clarity here. 
to see these different angles on what cursing, how the theme of cursing kind of goes through Scripture. And you see it kind of come out, I think, really cool in Psalm 109, especially as we plug it with uh, what the New Testament says about these things as well. But basically it's this. We have all cursed God. Um, you got one more, Kurt. We've all cursed God and have invited a divine, eternal curse upon ourselves for sinning against him. Jesus, however, becomes a curse for us. This is from Galatians 3. Dies in our place so that through belief in him, we can be blessed eternally. And that curse can be lifted from us. But that blessing is only for those who believe. So the curse still remains for those outside of Christ. It is no accident, then, that in the New Testament, we see things like this. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, Romans 12, and like this. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So you see kind of two things happening in the New Testament in light of, in light of this gospel, that this divine curse kind of lifts off us, the wrath of God lifts off us when we believe in Jesus, because Jesus deters that from us, and we're righteous in him, so there's kind of two, two things that stem from that. Again, but again, first, we're cursed. Jesus becomes a curse for us through his death and resurrection. We should therefore then, pulling from Romans 12, we should therefore then not curse people, but bless them because that's essentially what Jesus did for us. He could have maintained that curse over us, but he doesn't. He comes to lift it from us. See, we're under that divine judgment curse, but through Jesus' death and resurrection, it lifts from us. So one of the instructions in the New Testament is to live like that. Show that off with how you live. Even your enemies. Don't curse them, but love them, because that's what Jesus said for you, because you all were, and I was, an enemy of God. But he comes to us, and instead of cursing us, he blesses us. So we are to bless our enemies and not curse them. But on the flip side, you see things like Paul cursing other individuals who preach like anti-gospels in the New Testament. So it's like, he's still recognizing that th- there is a curse that Jesus brings. And if people are uh, irreversibly, uh, hopelessly indwelt in this anti-gospel lifestyle, and Paul notices it here by this kind of pseudo-Christian type preachers, he's like, he still curses them. He brings a curse upon them. May that half-gospel, that mocking of God that they have amongst the church, that legalistic gospel, may that be cursed and may they be cursed with it. And they will be if they don't turn from their sins. So there's kind of those two things. It's like, when do you use both? I mean, that's where we've got to have God's wisdom in it. Uh, but you see Paul bring a curse when there's a clear anti-gospel, anti-Jesus message uh, coming into the world, and if people are clearly irreversibly in it. Uh, but there is also um, a general sense to which Christians should not curse but bless to show off the good news of Jesus Christ, that uh, he is the one who has brought blessing and not cursing into the world for those who believe in him. So... Okay, so that's the first thing, of the first sub-thing of point three. The second thing is, we, like David, are the surrounded ones. So in one sense, we're like David's enemies. In another sense, in this final sense, we can also see ourselves like David, as the surrounded one, as the accused one, as the attacked ones. And even more so like Jesus's. Um, not only is it David's experience typical of ours, but David's experiences were typical of Jesus's, who in turn uh, had experiences that were typical of the churches, because the Bible says Jesus lives in us by his spirit. He's really in us. Like we sing that song, Better is One Day in Your Courts. Uh, really now, ultimately, uh, it, spiritually, Jesus is in you guys and in us when we gather. Not a building. It wasn't the Old Testament. He was in the temple, but now he's in Jesus, ultimately, and Jesus lives in us. And so the church is his temple. So better is one day uh, in Jesus than a thousand elsewhere. 
ultimately. But anyway, uh, Jesus is, um, his experience has become typical of ours because he lives in us. The difference between us and David and the difference between Old Testament and New Testament kind of generally here is that now our enemies aren't ultimately flesh and blood or people like it was for David, but rather spiritual forces of evil and sin and our old self. So like Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, clearly we do not wrestle as Christians against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So in the Old Testament, it's not as though sin was not present. There wasn't a spiritual enemy of Israel. There clearly was. But the Old Testament physical enemies of Israel resemble and point to the spiritual enemies now of the church. And so Paul's picking up on this theologically. He's saying, now our enemies aren't so much Pharaoh and Goliath and Nebuchadnezzar and countries like Babylon and the Philistines. Those were all typical now of the church's true enemies, which is sin and death and our old self. And in one sense, the problem of the wrath of God over us, the, cur- the divine curse that has to be lifted for us to live forever, uh, which Jesus takes care of on the cross. So, so then, if we kind of plug that formula into our reading of this, so that we're not so much thinking again about, you know, who doesn't like me at my job or in my neighborhood or uh, whatever, it's, um, we, th- we plug in this biblical theological formula of seeing this as, as typical of spiritual things like sin and death, then we can take a psalm or a verse like Psalm 109.15, which says, may his posterity be cut off, may his name be blotted out in the second generation, and we can see that find its fulfillment in the Christian's life by being prayed over things like sin and demonic influence and evil in general, for they are our true enemies. They're your guys' true enemies. They're my true enemies as Christians in this New Testament age It's sin. It's our old self. It's anything that would take our mind and focus off of Jesus in godly matters, which are spiritual things. That's our enemy, not a person. Paul says that. It's not flesh and blood. I don't care what someone does to you and how they accuse you or wrong you. They are not your true enemy. It's sin in them, or it's sin in you, uh, or it's sin just generally in the context. It's your old self, or it's death, uh, or demonic influence of some kind that is maybe the causer behind all those things. It could be, could be any number of those things or a combination of all of them. So you could even pray this then against your old self. And I was praying through the psalm this week. I don't think I had, at least I can't remember the last time I had through Psalm 109, but just trying to do this in my mind and <clears throat> thinking about uh, my, old, my old life, my old sinful life, my old self, and praying some of these things. As David prayed them and invoked a curse, upon those who threatened his life. I wanted to pray these things and invoke a curse upon the things that threaten my spiritual life in Christ. And so essentially just saying things like, and praying things like, may my old life, the sin that so easily entangles me and formally entangled me in a greater sense, uh, may it be so with that, with that. May it be so dealt with by Jesus Christ. May the posterity of my sin be remembered no more. May it be so, may, may, my, may my life in Jesus Christ, and this is an encouragement for you guys too as you pray things like this in the precatory Psalms, may your life in Jesus Christ uh, be so rich. May you so much embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and so much embrace the life change that he offers you, the newness, the righteousness that comes from him, that your old life may be forgotten, or at least a lot less remembered. Kind of like David is praying here over his enemies, your true enemy, pray it over that. Invoke that curse upon it. Curse it, even. Uh, because Jesus does that for you, right? Sin is condemned in the flesh. He condemns your sin. He curses it. So invoke that. Rem- have that gospel thought trickle into the early, your thought process when you pray through Psalms and just pray in general. Invoke that curse upon it and walk away from it. And 
just believe that it's dead. Invite death upon it, right? The, in Galatians 2, it says, you've been crucified with Christ. Your old self died with him. Believe that and invite, invite these themes of Psalm 109 to kind of draw your thoughts to the cross and allow you to live in a certain way that would give God glory now. Not living by your, your own righteousness, but by just by believing in what Jesus has done in the world by bringing an end to your old self, an end to your sin, an end to Satan, an end to death. All of that he does by dying in your place. So, just to wrap it up then, uh, can we pray prayers like this? Um, this last thing I was saying leads into this. Can we pray, pray prayers like this? I think, yeah, and absolutely. This is God's word. This is God's word. The imprecatory psalms are not, oh my gosh, that's kind of too offensive. I shouldn't read that or pray that. It's part of God's word. God wants his church, he wants his people to know this and to have it and to sing it and to think about it as much as any part of scripture. It's from him. So yeah, but we have to read this carefully and in a right hermeneutical or interpretational way, in a fulfilled sense. So again, instead of making this about you too quickly and about people who don't like you, uh, think about it from one perspective, see Jesus' experience in this psalm. So pray this psalm and thanks to God for sending another David, Jesus, to be rejected, to die, to be cursed in our place that our transgressions might be forgiven and our enemy himself cursed. And then pray this psalm and thanks that God is your deliverer who loves you, and he does love you. And then secondly, from another perspective, see your experiences in the psalm. Pray this psalm against sin and death and Satan, your old self, and believe that it has been answered through the work of Christ. It's a beautiful thing about praying for this. That's like maybe a little bit th- different than the way that uh, David was praying it, uh, is uh, that we have this fight. We know it's done. We know it's done. Jesus dealt with this. It's not up to you. Remember, David didn't fight. You shouldn't fight. God will fight for you, and he has. So we pray this by looking back on the cross. He's dealt with sin. He's cursed it. He's condemned it. Your old self, but you're free from it. Walk away and, uh, and live righteously by the strength that he provides. Kill sin by the strength that he provides. Worship God by the strength that he provides and be thankful by the strength that he provides. So pray that. When See your experience in the psalm first as the cursing one and remember that uh, keep to, to humble you and lead you to Jesus, but also as a surrounded one like David and pray against these things uh, in your life. Again, curse your old life and sin that used to imprison you and wish death upon it. With that said, let me, let me close in praise like David does uh, by reading the last few verses uh, again from the psalm, starting in verse uh, 26. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with this honor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, for uh, your grace uh, in the gospel today. Thank you for Psalm 109, which shows us it beforehand. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for uh, Jesus, the second David, who came to be rejected and die in our place and to usher in forgiveness and salvation for all who would receive him. Uh, And thank you that sin is actually dealt with, too, that you bring a curse. It's good news that you do, that sin is not just looked over, but it's dealt with. And so we pray, uh, God, for our church, pray for the, the church here to remember that, that you bring blessing and to remember that you've cursed our sin. Uh, And for those who don't believe, that they would see your love and know that you want them to believe so that they don't have to be cursed eternally, 
but that they can, um, but that they can have that curse lifted uh, by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, like the Bible talks about. So, um, God, we pray against our sin. Help us to kill it. Uh, just pray a general curse and, and death upon our old life. We pray it would have less power than it ever has over our life this week. May its posterity be cut off. May it die. And uh, may our lives be full of the fruit of the Spirit more this week than ever before. Thanks for providing that and making a way for that to happen. It's all from you, God. And so uh, thank you for the, the psalm that helps us to, to peer into it from a fresh poetic, prophetic angle uh, in, in Scripture. So we love you and you're amazing. And we uh, pray that you would bless your church and encourage us and build us up uh, this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand and respond.